Welcome to UberCube, the podcast where we discuss all things Cube, but with refreshments. This is your host, Anthony Adams, a.k.a. UberBear, and today I'm joined by my other two hosts. Hi, it's May, also known as Magic. And it's Stu. And we were supposed to have a fourth. He's not feeling well today, a little under the weather. There is definitely a, a bug running around uh, everywhere right now. But this episode in particular, I want to give a shout out to our good friend, Chris, a.k.a. Samich, who helped co-write what we're about to talk about today. And we will have him on a future episode, but I can't not give credit where credit was due. He worked really hard to help me pan this out, flush this out, and get it to where we needed it to be. Chris is our uh, resident and infamous peasant and pauper cube curator aficionado expert so uh yeah sucks that he can't be on the show but i think this episode really does demonstrate another one of the friends of the show and just their understanding of cube like this is this is going to be a good one yeah so you're asking yourself what are we going to talk about today it's kind of in tandem to what we spoke about with the basics of building a cube for community, sort of, kind of, but this is more advanced and we will tether more steps into that. But I think this is a good general question that I see coming across message boards and the Facebook MTG drafting and Reddit and a lot of things. And it's one of those questions that new curators ask all the time or the challenges that are facing in a roundabout way, is managing or curating your cube's speed. And, and an example of this, a real-world example, is like, hey, my aggro is too strong. What do I do? What levers do I pull to mitigate that? Or I feel like this archetype is overtaking my environment. What levers do I pull and why? And I thought it'd be best to take this back to basics, look at this from the top eight perspective, as we'll refer to it, of the things you can do as a cube curator to help you see and maybe flesh out some of those ideas, the things that are causing either your cube to be too fast or too slow or Goldilocks just right. There's definitely some levers to be pulled, and we're going to get to that. But before we go any further down this conversation, we're going to do the thing that we always do here at UberCube, and we're going to enjoy our libations of the show. We're going to start out with May. What are you having today? So, I'm actually having a non-alcoholic beverage this time. Gasp. How could I blast me? But I'm actually having a chocolate hazelnut coffee. Mm, Ooh, delicious. That's good. And Stu and I, I've been making jokes about this. I won't butcher this for the sake of doing it. We're both having a Stella Artois. I figured it would be a nice, uh, refreshing change. It's early on a Friday afternoon here in sunny January. Weather's quite pleasant here in North Carolina. But this is a good, like, middle of the day kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, nothing too crazy. So All right. Crack them. Crack get to it. All right. So if I had to define cube speed. I'm going to ask Stu, how would you define cube speed? Typically, I'm looking at how quickly you can put a deck together that wins, right? How quick do the archetypes threaten to either win or just completely take over the game? That's what I'm kind of looking at as the cube speed, right? A fairly low-hanging fruit easy example would be the vintage cube, right? So a vintage cube designed to be super fast, super broken, you can win in the first turn or two. Not not uncommon, really, to see a game not necessarily be won, but where one player has just such an overwhelming advantage over the other player that if you aren't prepared to have some kind of strong board state or a very strong amount of interaction in that first turn or two, then the games can be completely over. The more you sort of stretch out that speed, the more you want to lengthen that speed, 
then you can start taking out some of the stuff that's broken in a vintage cube, right? Marks and Solring, Mana Crypt, those kind of, those kind of cards that can just break parity very, very quickly. And maybe parity is another good word to describe, right? I think the more parity that you can present across the archetypes, and obviously with things like mana curve and requirements and, and your mana base, all those kind of things can factor in. Me personally, I like the, the super fast kind of cubes. I like the, the super fast, you know, first turn or two speed of a vintage cube. But as we are here at Ubercube, we want to be speed and archetype independent right we don't want to just be talking about a single pace of cube so having this sort of broad spectrum i think is is important to discuss another thing that's important to note is and it's directly related to how many turns does it take you should look at the kind of combo packages that you're intentionally trying to add in and ask yourself how soon can this combo deck start to do its thing and how fast does the aggro deck need to be in order to you know run it over Yep. So one of the perspectives we're taking from this is we're going to remove the players because player skill, you know, look of the draw, etc. definitely adds to the variability of the perceived speed of the cube. But you as the curator, the designer chooses what type of game states you want to see. What do you want to be your fastest deck? What do you want to be your slowest deck, etc.? And how do you find a good even keel medium with that? So I thought it would be a good thing to talk about those levers and we'll come into those soon. We'll talk about those very soon, but I think they're very relevant to the decisions that go into building a cube. I have a very like base question for May because she's curated mm. a lot of cubes. She's very good at it. And my question for you is what factors do you believe correlate to the Fey cubes speed? So I'll take it from the top and say that one of the biggest, I'll say hindrance for hindrances for speed is just, having access to tap lands rather than untapped lands. Because when you have multicolored decks, when you need that density and all these other colors, you're going to need the fixing in order to support it. And the slower your fixing is, the slower your deck's going to be. On paper, it reads that monocolored deck would be just more consistent, faster, etc. So people would be more inclined to draft white weenies. So then my follow-up from that is... Having slow fixing is a way that I can slow down the metagame, but also not having relevant one-drops. There's a lot of one-drops in this cube, but none of them are going to be overtaking the game very quickly. Like, you're not going to be seeing goblin guides in here, just as an example. Right. You've got a lot of levers you've pulled intentionally in the fake cube, and if I had to define that cube and present it to a group that was going to draft it, that's going to approximately take 40 minutes to draft the cube, let's just say 15, 20 minutes to build their decks, and then they're going to play their games. Their expectation of time, right? Because time does matter when you're... And I think it's a good way to explain to the people who are coming over to cube what should they expect as far as their time investment as individuals right and i would say mm -hmm. that the fey cube is somewhere between the mid to late game type of place the atmosphere oh, absolutely you've pulled a lot of these levers that we're going to talk about the mana types the creature types the volume of creatures even the mana values all these levers and we're going to go over a lot of the top eight in a few minutes that you can pull she's pulled more than normal with the intentions to have her environment provide a slower, more build up. It's larger game states is that, what the intention is. Yeah. And I will say that's one of the things that I love about the Fey cube and other cubes, cubes of yours. That setup 
phase that is not just again in a vintage cube environment where maybe you're looking for that first turn or two or three maybe where you're looking to generate like this hyper state of aggression or control or a huge mana base i also do enjoy the fact that you've got like for example the party mechanic i think that's such a wonderful example of of what represents the speed and the the enjoyment of the setup in that cube, right? Because you're looking for, okay, where's my rogue? Where's my wizard? And it presents right. almost a little sub game that you can play with yourself and your deck and your deck building and your drafting that isn't just, okay, I want to hyper-focus on that in the first turn. I'm looking to build something over the first few turns and that kind of lines up with the speed of the rest of the cube, I would argue, is that kind of oh, how you look at it, right? No, you got it on, like... Hammer on the nail head. You got it. <laughs> that That's what I was going for. Because when the central identity of your cube is something like, hey, I want types and subtypes to matter, then it's easy to balance the rest of the cube around that of, I need people to take time in order to set up the party. Because once they set up the party to get going, that's when the real game starts to begin. And trying to manage who has what. Etc. That is the speed that I was looking for. So how I'd support that is making sure that they have enough time to actually set that up. So we're going to kind of talk about how you choose as a curator these top eights. So we're going to talk about these components, these elements of speed. And there's a bunch of them. We'll go through the list. But I think it's a really good idea to give some people, like if I wanted to do a barometer or a speedometer rather, and I wanted to demonstrate and place certain types of our environments on a speedometer where I would use a, we'll use Chris's powered vintage cube 450 and its current state, our fastest cube in our environment. So that's going to be the maxed out pedal to the metal. You got your speedometer pushed all over to the right full RPMs, yep. right? Like the expectation when you sit down for that, you're going to draft it and you're okay with, I spent the 50 minutes to do all these things because it was about the draft, but then you're quite okay with the game probably wrapping itself in under five minutes. Yep. That is very much a possibility in that type of environment. If I wanted to do a different one, I would say my powered 540 would go even a notch below that because I've intentionally put in things like landfalls, matters, and stuff that I know as a curator are definitely kind of in tandem with what May said. I want people to get that big, bombastic type of plays where they're doing like Gitrog and things like that. I realize that's not the fastest environments, but it also plays to a certain type of player that wants to do more of a build-up, getting into more depth of their deck and doing a little bit more of it instead of the turn and burn. Yeah, no denying the power level of a card like Gitrog Monster, right? Super right. can be super broken in the right in the right environment with the right with the right setup, with the right support. So and I do like that cards like that exist where you've got those choices that even at the high power level where you want that speed pushed over, you've got something where you know, and that is kind of infamous, right? The Gitrog combo deck. It's a. It was. I don't think it's quite meta anymore, but it was a very, very complicated, complex, competitive EDH deck where you would basically win on your end step, uh, just continually cycling through your deck at instant speed, and so something like that. I think not super fast, but very, very much fun and powerful. Then you go over to the other side of the speedometer where you're in the standard 35. You get a ticket and you get into my Monopoly cube. 
that would be where I'd put that. I intentionally designed that and pulled certain levers of this top eight in order to make sure that that environment was slower and that choices were made to get the treasures to make you go a little faster. So it's a speed up, slow down type of very speed control environment. It's intentional. Then the make you, uh, the, the make cube, we're going to call it the make cube, the fake cube. <laughs> it should be the make cube. <laughs> the fake cube definitely falls in the middle where you're trying to cast stuff like the Shiv and dragons and stuff like that. That's your haymakers. That does take time, does take investment. And with the levers that she has pulled, introducing certain types of mana that are slower, et cetera, and not having that always be a threatened deck allows that build up and a slower promise to your players. They're levers. And we're going to start talking about those levers. The big eight. Number one, in my opinion, as a cube curator, and, and May's already alluded to it, that is your determination of how fast your cube is, the ballast point is aggro. May, do you agree with that statement? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How fast your aggro packages is entirely hindered on what the other decks need to be doing in order to both compete with aggro and how aggro is going to compete with them. And I would say that aggro, aggro is a loose term, is the fastest deck in your cube. Not necessarily the Goblin Guides or the Savannah Lions or the Ragavans of the world, but the deck that emerges and becomes quickest to threaten all of the mid-range and controls before they get a chance to set up. That's a big component of that cube speed, and pulling certain levers in this top eight will help mitigate that risk, as she has mentioned in the fake cube, where her lands are intentionally tapped, causing them to back down. Some examples of aggro using Uberbear's Artifact Cube, for example. It's a different type of aggro. You're not going to find a Goblin Guide in there. You're not going to find a Ragavan in there. You're not. These do not exist. They're too fast for the environment, or at least the design what I wanted that environment to represent. It would never give the other decks a chance to take up off the ground. They're basically getting strafed before they even take off the ground. Stuff like Toolcraft Exemplar for one planes, you get a creature dwarf artificer at the beginning of combat on your turn. If you control an artifact, Toolcraft Exemplar gets plus two, plus one until the end of turn. If you control three or more artifacts, it also gains first strike until the end of turn for a one, one pretty straightforward Different definition of aggro in most cube environments, but really sends a message whenever it's easy to play some kind of low-costing uh, artifact or a servo or any of the above. It turns this into your aggressive package. Yeah, and I think the the, the first one that we have here, Porcelain Legionnaire, two colorless and white Phyrexian for a 3-1 first strike. I mean, you, you can get that out turn two, maybe even turn one in a, in a broken environment with those busted uh, artifact manners but definitely just represents such a fast clock. And again, you mentioned for something like a control deck or a mid-range deck, that is something that if you get two or even three swings in with it, and now you've taken half the life of your opponent, that, that represents something that I think can put aggro in a, a pretty dangerous position. We've got one more on this list that I'll never take from May. <laughs> That's why it took Paul. And then the last, one you, <laughs> the last one you have on the list is Gut, True Soul Zealot. And I think that gut here is pretty interchangeable with any of the kind of rabble masters where it's, this is my card that I'm going to be playing at this specific turn so that way I can close the game. It's a card that you play in order to just generate a lot of value in order to put a clock on your opponent very, very quickly. Even if you get only one menace 4-1 menace skeleton out on the board, that one 4-1 menace skeleton is going to be chunking your opponent every turn, and they're not going to be able to survive many attacks. Menace is such a filthy 
keyword. Filth. It's absolutely <laughs> filthy. I like you've it. got to block with two creatures, and it's a four-one. Like, I got beat by good gut. luck. I got beat you. by gut by our good friend Chill the other day. On uh, we played a little Moto game. We uploaded my artifact cube, and yeah, oh yeah, gut gut totally crushed me. Nice. But the way I this comes across the board a lot. Like, hey, I've got a problem. My aggro package, etc. A good way to answer them will be in these other levers that we will pull. But the best way to think about your aggro package is it is your fast damage. It is your consistent damage and it equals your player removal. It is literally taking that speedometer, RPMs and going to the max as fast as possible. Yeah. And and I will say, I will not, I wasn't just mentioning something like menace as like a joke. That is something else that needs to be considered very carefully in any one of these aggro packages, right? Because the ability to be able to put a creature on the battlefield that has a keyword like menace, we've talked about things like lifelink in the past and just how breaking they can be when you've got a a game where, especially in a cube where creatures turning sideways is typically going to be the way that a lot of the games end. So having the ability to put creatures on the battlefield that have that type of evasion, that's something else to be very, very careful of. Okay, so aggro was our first lever. Let's pull our second lever and decide if we want to pull that one. May, would you mind taking on the second one, please, for the listeners? Of course. So the second most important lever is the monocurve. How efficient are your creatures? How efficient are your removal spells? How much mana does it cost for your deck to do the thing? So if you go into Cube Cobra and you look at analytics, you can go down and you can set all of your all of your cards to be set in like a little chart. And then you can see the little nice little beautiful curve. Point is, is that when it comes to uh, your mana curve and how efficient that it is, when you have lots of one and two drops, you're going to expect people to be playing more cards because... When you're playing something on turn one, then something on turn two, then something on turn three, something on turn three can just be like a one and a two drop if there's just a high enough density. An interesting fact, the first lever we pulled was the aggro. The second one is the actual mana curve. But the neat part about that correlation, I said it early on, the lowest part, the fastest, most consistent damage criteria within your cube environment by proxy does equal your aggro package. And so the lowest thing on your mana curve has a good opportunity to also be your aggro package. So that's a good one, I think, to think about. Ponder on that. I'd like the audience feedback. I think I got that statement right. Another one is, and Stu, this is the the third lever. Yeah, this is the volume of creatures. So obviously, if you've got a lot of creatures and you can just dump a bunch of creatures out fairly quickly, and it's not just the volume of creatures, we'll go again and correlate this with your mana base, right? Do you have a lot of lands in the cube that enter tapped, right? And how are you incentivizing players to play lands untapped in order to get creatures onto the battlefield quickly? If you've got a very high density of creatures in your cube and it's incentivizing players to draft a high density of one, two, three mana creatures, that can be something that ends the game very quickly. It can also end up in stalemates. And I can certainly say that I've played not even just cube, but various formats where you end up with these stalemate situations You've got two players across from each other, both of them with a bunch of creatures in play. Maybe you've got a bit of evasion knocking around, bit of flying, bit of menace, bit of haste or trample or even vigilance. But this is why I mentioned previously about menace and how much those keywords and those evasive abilities on those creatures can be so significant in a cube where you've got this high density of creatures. And things like tokens and token generation 
I will say that I love cards that generate tokens, even things all the way down to the vintage cube, probably the highest speed. One of the a real, real powerful card in that environment is retrofitter foundry, right? One mana artifact allows you to just dump out one ones and turn them into larger creatures. Like that by itself can just take over a game very, very quickly, especially if you have I the mean, mana. You'll base never to have do dead it. mana with it. Exactly. So. And I'm again something else that I love is mana sinks. In any format that I'm playing, I love mana sinks. So especially if you've got this high volume of creatures and ways to just dump your mana regardless of what uh, what you've got in your hand, that can be very, very significant in the pace. So while these do definitely draw lines of, you know, they de- there's definitely a Venn diagram happening where these different components do touch one another. You as the curator get to make key decisions about adding and subtracting and how much, how, how dense into these levers that we're going to pull here, how far do you want to go in order to stymie or to increase the speed of your cube environment? So the volume of creatures is basically armies must march. There's an entire battlefield covered in goblins or whatever. Sure, those will get through, but I'm not talking about the player's perspective, how the game outcome. It's about the vision of the curator and deciding I want X amount of creatures in my said environment. And these type of creatures will increase and decrease the speed of my cube environment. Do you both agree with that statement? Yeah. Agreed, 100%. Then we've got a fourth lever that often you can pull if you want to be a cube character. We've already kind of talked about this. May, would you mind taking this one on, please? Our fourth one is actually mana types. So this is things like lands, how much volume of fixing, how many colors, and how soon you can expect those colors, kind of like what we alluded to earlier. I'm a big proponent, and I know that I've sort of received a bit of blowback. I'm a big proponent of... Let the fixing run rampant. I love the triomes. I love signets. I love anything that allows players to be able to generate an efficient mana base. I know that you're kind of looking at a bit of a trade-off because a signet can be wonderful when you're looking to fix for two or three or four or even five colors, definitely four or five colors in an environment It can also be a little bit dangerous if you're looking for a bit of action and then you're pulling a Mox Diamond and then a Felwar Stone and then a Signet and you're thinking, okay, my opponent's over there with three or four creatures and I'm not getting anything going on. But those can be so significant when it comes to the speed of the cube. And I think you kind of need to address, first of all, the artifacts. I think those are very, very important, right? Are you putting in Max Diamonds, Soul Rings, Mana Crypt in a vintage environment? Yes, you want that speed. In a lower power environment, do you want those cards? Probably not. Where do you sort of put the line? I'll, I'll, I'll put this to both of you. Like in the Fake Cube and in some of your slower environments, where do you kind of put that baseline when it comes to those artifacts and how fast do you want people to be able to get them out for either ramping or fixing? So there's two parts. If I want a fast cube environment, my zero to two on my mana curve for my various mana rocks, like Stu talked about the Felwar stones, et cetera, or soul rings or moxen or whatever we're talking about here, that zero to two is your fast mana. Whereas anything three and above is starting to go into the more setup slower plays. And I know there's variance and and for the audience, I'm not talking about chaining them or stacking them, right? I'm not talking about soul ring into signet here, right? I'm referring to as individuals when you're placing them within your cube environment. Zero to two is fast, three and above. Decaying from there is slower. And by choosing those, you're choosing 
to slow down your environment. And you can balance that. You know, you don't have to have strictly all zeros to twos and then threes plus, but you can then make a decision what kind of blends you want in order to manage or mitigate your speed. Another one that I thought was interesting, and I put it in here too, and I wanted to ask this of the audience for audience participation. It's going to be shocks and pain lands. They're fast and ready mana. We'll throw fetches in there too, but every one of them cost life. So while they're tempoing up your plays, and I know I'm going to the player side now, you're, but you're also draining your life starting from that 20 HP going backwards. Greatness at any cost. Yes. They're quickening how you resolve spells and get battlefield set up, right? Yeah. But at the same time, they're taking you backwards on your life total, opening you up to that. So I think there's a balance to be struck there as well as to how much pain you want your players to suffer in order to get that glory, right? Sometimes putting mana in there of other options that doesn't necessarily sap their life total or enters the battlefield tap or et cetera is perfectly fine too. I think there's a balance to be struck there. In my environments, I don't choose to put a shock, a fetch, and a pain altogether. I have not done that yet. I had at one point in my vintage queue, but it didn't pan out. There was too much damage being taken and it was taken away from the life totals so players wouldn't make decisions that I wanted them to make. So I got rid of the pain lands as a solution to that. What do you think about that, May? When it comes to the pain lands, shock lands, etc., you also have to ask yourself is how much are they actually going to be punished for losing that life? Because again, the only life point that matters is the last one. And when you're facing a lot of decks that are able to punish you for those lands and how aggressively that you're going to be getting punished for having those lands, that does affect what kind of fixing that you want to consider for that part. So when you introduce the pain lands, shock lands, etc., they can be a way that you can kind of regulate how fast they're going to be going down because the aggro players or the mid-range players now have less life total that they have to take down. So another interesting, if we use Soul Ring as our base, we'll just start with one and then we go to Felwar Stone or whatever, or a Signet or a Talisman. I had another one that I thought was interesting. We start getting to those three pluses. I found two of them that I think fall right in the middle and I think they serve a lot of different conversational pieces. One of them in particular is Coalition Relic. For three colorless, you get an artifact. Tap, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Tap it, put a charge counter on Coalition Relic at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase. Remove all charge counters from Coalition Relic. Add one mana of any color to your mana pool for each charge counter removed this way. I think that's an interesting one because it kind of tilts more towards the fast aggro side of the things because it has the ability to push you up one and, you know, tap for itself. So I think it's there's a lot to be unpacked with Coalition Relic. I think that's a faster mana rock. Would you agree, May? I wouldn't call it a faster mana rock but i would say that it has does it does generate a good amount of mana for very little cost it would it would be very comparable to playing say a warm power stone i i agree i actually don't think that i consider this a fast mana artifact i definitely look more of this as i would much prefer to put this out on let's say in a in a very very fair environment i put this out on turn three and then i wait and i pass the turn i then want to tap this to add the charge counter so that on my turn after that i get the two mana right i get to remove the charge counter for a mana and then tap it for a mana so i i don't consider this a fast mana rack i actually think the overall coalition relic as far as power level is concerned has kind of dropped down a little bit i would argue it's not quite as premium the fixing as it used to be 
maybe in a in some of the very very high power environments you could attribute this to things like the availability of treasures for additional mana fixing mm -hmm. but i think this is definitely more of a very very fair mana fixer rather than a mana accelerator I agree. I agree. The next one actually creates another interesting question. This is another participation type of thing. Chromatic Lantern. For three colors, you get an artifact. Lands you control have tap, add one mana of any color, or you can tap it for one mana of any color. On its face value, it's three to tap for any mana. But interestingly enough, it's fixing your mana across the spectrum, giving you access to other colors, quickening your plays I love so where card. does this fall as far as speed i thought these two were interesting because they're in different this one can actually make it so that people splash a lot more and do a lot more big plays right so i think it's i think it's an interesting dynamic to add that i didn't know where these two fell within that that speedometer that we were talking about i love this card i think it's a great oh, fixer in any environment where and i again going all the way back to the whole issue with the triumphs and the over availability of mana fixing. How much are you trying to, or do you want to enable those three, four, five color good stuff decks? Are you trying to push your players towards some of the archetypes that are organically present within the cube? Chromatic Lantern, obviously, if you're trying to, I don't want to say break that, but you are looking to build a deck. Uh, or even support from a curation perspective, you want to be able to support those three, four, five color good stuff decks. This is a, a fantastic rock that does also tap for any color and enables your lands to tap for any color. So I love this card. I think it's a, you know, obviously it's an EDH staple, but I think in the, I think it has a, a real strong presence in cube and I think it, it can be a really powerful effect. If I'm not mistaken, I run this in almost every cube I have. I don't, I don't blame you. I would, yeah. I would do the same. I wanted to add one more because I feel like I'd be doing myself a disservice if I didn't talk about one of my favorite cards. It's not a rock, but it's Prophetic Prism. Yeah. The whole reason that I love it is that it's a completely fair card. It's a cantrip for two, but it gives you that mana fixing once for everything. So if you're trying to fix your pips or you're trying to play that kind of mid-range, etc., there's also ways that you can play around it. But more importantly is that it's just a card that can go in any deck that gives you fixing without like accelerating your gameplay. So even though it comes down for two, giving you that fixing earlier is really, really good. Yeah, Chromatic Star and, and Cards of the Ilk could be, you know, kind of put in that same kind of category. They're definitely yeah. not necessarily mana acceleration unless you have some kind of, you know, tap artifacts, Urza, you know, which again is very, very high power. But they, I think that kind of fits in the same kind of thing where you've got that fixing ability without the, the hyper-aggressive acceleration. So to kind of tie that one off, the choices that you make as a curator, land density, the types of lands enters the play, or whether or not it pains you. And then we went ahead and comboed into that fourth lever, the mana rocks as well, choosing the speed at which they can impact the game state for your players is definitely a lever that you can choose to pull to either add or subtract from to make the speed of the cube transition. Our next mm -hmm. one we have, May, would you mind taking on this fifth lever that curators can pull in order to change the speed of their environments? So we foreshadowed this one earlier. It is RAS and the efficiency of removal. So a lot of this comes down to how soon are you going to be expecting the board to be wiped? How soon are you going to be expecting your things to be removed? And when removal is super efficient, then higher-costed cards have a much higher risk. They have a much higher cost. 
So it tends to lean to more leaner environments because you'll just get punished for not playing lean, if that makes sense. Yep. And I would also add that these type of cards have diminishing returns. There's a point where Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily going to win the game. You may say, hey, as the player, I board wiped and that allowed me an opportunity to stabilize or you just slowed down the pacing of the game entirely. So an important function for a curator to choose is the volume or the types of board wipes you have. Our good friend Justin Parnell mentioned at one point, he in particular does not care much for four CMC or four mana value board wipes because they're so efficient that they could do resets and that he preferred that they went into the five plus because of the impact they have on a game. And I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. So you as the curator needs to decide on what spectrum you want your wraths and your removal to be able to impact the both the board as well as removing creature types because ultimately removal and board wipes, they do not win the game. They just slow or reset the game. I think they're in a bit of a weird spot right now. The four co- or the four mana, the four CMC board wipes. So your damnations, your supreme verdicts, wrath of guards. They've tended to, in my opinion, and this almost seems crazy to say, given how much we've seen power creep of creatures recently, I don't generally tend to see them in a lot of vintage cube first 40s. They tend, they generally tend to be relegated to sideboard, which is kind agree. of crazy when you think about it, right? We've got so many incredibly efficient creatures, maybe just the, the hardcore control decks, where you would typically see more of those board wipes being present in the first 40 cards are just not, you know, they're not as in demand, they're not as necessary anymore. And also the the single card removal. This is something, I don't want to reinvent the wheel on this because we've talked about it in previous episodes. I'm, I, I definitely have had pretty egregious situations where I've been, you know, setting myself up, looking to build a, a some kind of board presence or just, you know, have fun with the game and lead towards that haymaker, right? The Shivan Dragons, the big six, seven mana creatures that I want to be able to win the game with. And then suddenly my opponent says, oh, I'm just going to use two mana and I'm going to get rid of your haymaker that, that wins the game. That is not just an overall speed of the of the cube, but it's just a speed of one aspect of the cube in that removal. And I would agree. I think the five mana, the fumigates... We can quickly run through a couple of those. Fumigate, yeah, three colorless and two white. Sorcery, destroy all creatures. You gain one life for each creature destroyed this way. How much is that one extra mana really matter compared to something like a Wrath of God? But you are gaining, you know, potentially a, a game-changing amount of life in return. Like, that could be pretty significant. Burn down the house is another one. Three colorless and two red, another sorcery. You can choose one, deals five damage to each creature and each planeswalker, or you can create three one one red devil creature tokens with when this creature dies. It deals one damage to any target they gain haste until end of turn. Those are definitely, Fumigate is a cool card. Allows you to kind of get a bit of a, a, well, not even a bit, a a huge swing. If your opponents, you know, dumped a bunch of creatures out onto the battlefield, now you've destroyed them all and you've been able to gain some life. Burn down the house is not quite as flexible because it's only five damage and not destroy everything. But then you do get the opportunity if you feel like it to, to create some creatures that can potentially win the game. But they're not just as straightforward as pay four mana, destroy everything. And like you say, now you've got that reset. Do you want to reset in your cube? Do you want that position to be to, to do you want that to become part of 
a anticipated game state? Do you want it to be something that the players have to play around? Is that I don't want to dump all my creatures out. I don't want to be aggressive or too aggressive because I'm fearful of the fact that if I dump my hand out, even if I'm trying to squeeze through that last point or two of damage, that now I've got no cards in hand, now I've got no creatures, and my board state is is just dumpstered. Like that can be pretty devastating. And how like again, how much do you want that to be part of the game state? And I think that there is important in the speed conversation as well. Yeah, and I would add that the board wipes are directly correlated to the toughness of the creatures a lot of times. So, sure. For example, I was playing our good friend Sandwich's Popper Cube yesterday, and we we're talking about most of those actually impact two damage on the board, which kills a lot of critical mass of the said creatures. So we were kind of having this deliberation about the volume, even though it's lower impact and it's mostly damage relegated at the common level, it's still a consideration of how much saturation of wraths you want to have in that environment. So for my environments, I don't have anything that's relegated to the rarity restricted, but my thematic designs, mostly 360. I try to confine my wraths to four to five for reasons that Stu mentioned. They get relegated to a sideboard more times than not, just because people want to see what your opponent has before you invest in it. And or it just someone drafts all of them and it gives this poor representation that Anthony has put five nonstop blowing up the board. I've had this come around the table before, too. And they're like, oh, my gosh, could you put any more rafts in this cube? And I'm like, no, you literally drafted all the rafts. Right. So it's the players are going to have a different perspective. But from a curator standpoint, I think it's smart to limit the amount of rafts and allow the creatures to thrive and the games to play. But that is a decision on cube speed like you said, and May has said, that directly impacts that. Let's move over to our sixth lever that you can pull as a cube curator. May, would you mind taking this one on, please? So our sixth lever is life gain. So life gain. Life gain. Uh, life gain is pretty interesting to talk about because it gives people both the chance to stabilize, but it also lengthens the game state. There gets to a point where it's, if your life gain packages are really strong, then they can just get to an impressive amount of life. So that way your opponent literally can't get past it. So I think it's interesting. It's a one of the things that you take life gain. And we talked about fumigate a minute ago, and I think that's a perfectly serviceable card, but I wouldn't want to have iterations of that. Stu has mentioned this on numerous occasions about repeated versus one-time use. Yes. So fumigate in the wrath section represents, sure, I blow up your stuff. Uh, you had me on the back of my heels, but now I potentially stabilize because I've shut down your goblins that were coming at me. I bought myself some time. Let's say I've bought myself five life. I may be able to take a few more strafes across the airfield. But at the same time, it also, as May alluded to, lengthened the time invested in the game. So it is, from a curation standpoint, a decision that it needs to be made. I would say that I would rather avoid repeated stuff like Shadow Spear, which I love this card, but I wouldn't want to have multiple copies of Shadow Spear, which we'll read in a minute, versus like a food that just gives a one-time stabilization opportunity. But you got to control that volume as well, too, right? These are levers in the life game perspective to choose how fast you want your not only your cube to go in speed, but your games to last. And how are you going to manage these stalemate situations? Again, going back to one of our previous points, I remember playing a good friend, David Wolsey. I was playing against him with his mono-white cube, and we both had creatures with life gain. And we just sat there looking at each other, just thinking, okay, we both had 30-something, 40-something life. We've both got a critical mass of creatures. 
how are we going to break this, right? No one wants to cast Fumigate at this point. We're both sitting there with a bunch of cards in our hand and a bunch of creatures. If we Fumigate, maybe someone gains a bunch of life, but that doesn't really matter. But now no one's got a board state, you know, who's able to rebuild fairly quickly. So now we're just kind of sitting there. Eventually there was the ability to, for, for parity to be broken and someone was able to win. David was actually able to win that. But it did end up being a very, very long game. I actually think that... There was three rounds that we played in that cube. Everybody played three rounds, except David and I, and we played one match, just the three. We played three games in that one match. Everybody else played three because we were just sitting there looking across from each other. I would personally say that in an environment like that, and again, going back to cubes where you're most likely to have games ended by creatures turning sideways, now you're like, like you alluded to, Anthony, you're lengthening that game. You're potentially creating those stalemate game, game boards. And that, can turn into pretty unfun experiences. Yep. May, do you have any thoughts on that? Nope. Okay. So <laughs> let's move over to... No, our... I mean, if you want me to add something, it can be applied to, say, if you were to have gain lands added in rather than just any generic tap lands, so that way, hey, I now start off with slightly more life so you can have more aggressive cards because everybody has tap lands everybody I, has I would agree with life, that. life they gain from their lands they so. definitely diminish aggro in your environments as well too by having gain yep. lands it takes that back that's a consideration too that's a very good point here's an interesting sort of parallel to draw on that right everybody's familiar mm. with monopoly you are more than happy mm. let's take the shark lands right i'm happy to shock in a shark land pay that to life I've now got access to those two colors can really be helpful moving forward, right? That can be pretty beneficial. You do that when you're buying properties in Monopoly. You're spending your money. You're spending your life, right? But how different would it be for one player if that one player, instead of starting off at $2,500, started off at $2,600 or $2,700? If you average that out over 1,000 games of Monopoly, how much of an advantage do you think those extra two or even three points of life would have over the course of those games it probably wouldn't be insignificant right and that's where i think that those kind of considerations can come in i would say is to tie that one off is that i would limit the amount of life gain if you choose to add it to your environments because of the reasons that we have stated the seventh cog that can be pulled is the planeswalker density i have on numerous occasions and it may be a negative connotation it's just the way i view planeswalkers in general, they serve for me as active fogs, as in they are taking the creature strategies if they are powerful enough and causing them to circumvent the player oftentimes to take out the planeswalker because the planeswalker represents some form of inevitability, right? So it must be answered. So I think adding too many planeswalkers can detract from your overall game speed, slow it down or speed it up, depending on the types of planeswalkers. That does matter too. I won't say that it doesn't matter. We're going to give some prime examples, two in particular, where they'll either speed up or slow down the games for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Another one is they, I just mentioned it, they, it's kind of an additive distraction from life total. That's, that's going to that, I must attack with all of my resources this planeswalker in this case to ferry the time raveler for one colorless one blue and one 
one white, I get a legendary Planeswalker Teferi. Each opponent can cast spells only any time they could cast a sorcery. My plus one, until your next turn, you may cast sorcery spells as though they had flash. Or my minus three, return up to one target artifact creature or enchantment to its owner's hand, draw a card for four loyalty. Pretty this, much a must answer. This is a must answer. It's an, I like this, but it's a very oppressive Planeswalker, and it does definitely inhibit game speeds. May, do you agree with that statement? Yep. I think even if you would just look at it as I pay three mana, I tick it up. Teferi now has five loyalty. You could argue that this is now five extra life that you've just gained. And I think we've even discussed that exact point at previous times in other episodes, right? You are now in a position where you have this permanent on the battlefield that must be answered. Teferi is a very, very strong planeswalker. The static ability is very strong. The ability to be able to bounce a creature is also very strong and draw a card. And and I love that the, the fog terminology that you use there I'll reference my good friend Oko, Thief of Crowns, love me some Oko. I play this in a commander deck, and it inevitably turns into, I play Oko, the entire board, immediately, it's just nothing else matters except getting Oko off the table. If they've got 5,000 creatures on the battlefield and I've got one life, they'll probably still send all 5,000 creatures (laughs) at Oko just to make sure that that guy is gone from the battlefield, right? So I don't know how much life you want to equate that to. But uh, yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's an incredible distraction from life total. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. Planeswalkers are, in my opinion, maybe the most dangerous permanent type to just include in a queue because you know they they just have that ability to be not just so powerful as a permanent but also just a powerful mind control effect the next one that i would say that's more aggressive would be like a garuk wildspeaker from the original lorwyn where it actually makes creatures and has an overrun effect so from a curation standpoint that type of planeswalker is incentivizing attacks, incentivizing overruns. It's moving the trajectory or the game speed forward. Whereas a card like Teferi that we read before definitely is there for the controlly aspect and inhibiting the gameplay. Those are two different cube speeds embedded in those two different cards, in my opinion. Two different psychologies. And May, we've talked about this with your fake cube. You have no planeswalkers in your fake cube, right? You could maybe attribute some reasoning to not just yourself but other curators not wanting to put planeswalkers in either because they do present a distraction or from a cost perspective right some of these planeswalkers especially the powerful ones the fun ones can be pretty pricey tell us a bit about the the planeswalker like let's say for example i said to you i'm going to give you a billion dollars i'm you're going to have to put planeswalkers in your cubes right you can't say no to me how are you looking at that from a speed perspective, right? Are you looking at, I want to bolster certain aspects of the cube. I may be looking to slow down certain aspects of the cube. Like, could you even come up like formulaically with some kind of way that you would want to use a permanent like that in order to either speed up or slow down the cube? Or would you even just say that adding them just organically either speeds up or slows down the cube? So I think that when it comes to adding planeswalkers and how it affects your speed, it can be boiled down to these are permanents that act very proactively in order to either generate value or prevent your opponent from generating value or insert any number of advantages here. And basically being a separate thing that can eat sometimes more than your extra life because nobody's going to be able to just exactly hit your planeswalker for to kill it every time. 
It's just not going to happen every time. There's yep. either going to be too much or too little. They're going to have to split it up. Regardless, is that it is now a distractive thing from whatever your game state currently is. So you have to ask yourself, what does this Planeswalker help me accomplish? How does it help the game progress? How is this going to be a proactive card? Yeah, there's definitely Planeswalker types like Domri Raid that I think of that's very aggressively tilted. So if you wanted to have a Planeswalker that represented an aggro type package, you could do that. And then you got stuff like a Johnny Vengeant where it definitely has like an embedded lightning helix is one of the modes that you can use that to not only kill your player, but also to gain life. So it gets in this weird counterbalance of the speed of the game. So deciding which planeswalkers are allowed to enter into your environment, or if any at all, is a good decision from a curation standpoint to gauge how fast you want your environments. And you, there's so many planeswalkers printed at this point. You can pick the ones that fit the type of speed or gameplay that you want. Yes. Tybalt. Put your Tybalt. Put in. your Tybalt's in there. <laughs> the next lever, and, and so I've been clumping these guys together just to make this more easy to interpret, but I'd say the next lever is, we talked about is the first one was definitely your aggressive packages, your aggro packages, right? Your Boros or Gruul or whatever you're doing, the lowest stuff on the mana curve. But your eighth thing that you can use to manage the speed of your cube is your mid-range, and I put them together, and your control package. And I'm being very generic in that statement because I'm going to clump together all these ideas of stuff like counter magic and removal that have diminishing returns, but they also stop the aggro package from marching forward. So you got to think about that's the balancing cog that you're using when you're saying my aggro is too strong. Well, what does everybody tell you to do? Well, I need you to bolster your mid range, put those four mana value or excuse me, four mana value wolves in there to shut down that goblin guide. That is literally like a lever that most curators will pull. And so I recently had this question presented to me. And I found myself it's kind of the inspiration for this episode. It was so generic. Someone did say, hey, my aggro package just keeps winning. What do you do? And I literally gave like this goofy formulaic answer on the drafting page. I'm like, well, you know what I would do is I would minus two, two aggro creatures plus two, two mid range creature creatures saying, think a flash in wolf that's four, four and add one board wipe. I'm not sure where I got these numbers from. I just literally <laughs> acted like I was strumming through some kind of textbook, but you'll find that that's what curators will do a lot is that balancing portion or to change that speed. If the aggro is too strong, they'll tell you to bolster your mid range. If your mid range is too strong, they'll tell you to bolster your control. These are kind of that paper, rock, scissors, speed, trifecta that's always kind of existed in there that nobody wants to talk about but those are definitely levers you can pull as a curator i want to say i actually saw an interesting comment today this was on reddit this was in the mtg cube subreddit and someone was talking about control this may be a little bit off topic well actually they weren't specifically talking about control they were talking about blue and they said i have a friend who has a cube they do not like counter magic their blue package does not include a single counter spell not one Guess which color is the least played color in that cube? <laughs> it's mm, blue. I wonder. Hmm, I mm. wonder why. Ignoring the fact that, obviously, it's a big part of blue's identity. There's a lot of very, very good reasons to include counter magic. I'm fine if you don't want to include, you know, force of will, force of negation, some of the more broken counter magic. You know, put in a cancel. You know, put in, uh, you know, something that's way less efficient or much more narrow in order to have some kind of presence there. Right. I think control is a little misunderstood, if you will, right? You can very much tailor a control package in order to be 
not too efficient, but be that be present in a cube, right? If you've got a very heavy creature dense cube, you don't just want a whole bunch of you know single blue or whatever essence scatters, right? Or just hyper efficient creature counter magic. Something like a cancel, which can absolutely counter any spell, but it's three mana. You know, an aggro package with a bunch of one and two drops can quite easily go, you know, underneath that. But I think that's another important aspect of the pacing, right? Think about those those counter spells. Think about those mid-range packages. Where do those cards lie within the grand scheme of your cube, right? Again, right. control is a wonderful archetype. I think it has a place in a lot of cubes. But use the the overall speed of the rest of the archetypes where you're considering how fast and how efficient do I want my counter magic? Where do I need my mid-range package to be in order to either A, be able to sort of develop itself and then become too strong for an aggro package when it comes to the mid to end game or how do i want my control package to be able to interact enough with my opponent where i can eventually get to an end game where i can have an advantage i think a lot of that you know again it can it just comes down to those card choices yep so i would say that going into the final thoughts right let's just jump right into it that these, I, I know this is a lot. We just provided you a lot of information. And, and when Chris and I are writing this, we look at this as kind of like a menu where not all of these are going to apply to every environment, but you can pull these individual levers. And I'm not suggesting I'm a, I'm a professional troubleshooter and whenever you change too much, you can never actually tell what impacted the speed of something, right? What you need to have a very controlled way of doing this. So whenever I did say back to joking with myself, add two of these and minus two of these and add one of those, it was a very deliberate statement. But what I would have done if it was me, I probably would have said, Oh, I would remove this specific card and this specific card, but I didn't want to confuse the person asking the question and I wanted it to be their decision for them to come to that goal. And so just by providing a little bit of a roadmap of I would add, you know, plus two, minus two and be done with it was probably oversimplifying the problem the person was engaging with, but pulling these different levers, adding more wraths or reducing the number of wraths or deciding the speed of your mana or how quick it quickens games is all decisions that you make as a cube curator from top-down design or from any format of design. Do you agree with that, May? Uh, yeah. I would also say that when it comes to playing around with these or asking for feedback and et cetera, that it, it kind of takes time for you to sink your teeth in and actually be able to understand what aspects of your cube are either speeding it up or slowing it down and understanding the context for your environment that you're wanting to curate. And it, it becomes easier to identify those the, the more that you're allowed to play with those. And just understand that just because you intend something to happen doesn't mean it's always going to happen, and that's okay. It's something that you can work on, and that's what changes are for. I would agree with that 100%. Part of the process. Yep, part of the process. This is, in fact, process. a process. There yeah. is no perfection to this. This is just the best way that I could take this and distill this down to explain it, the thought processes that we are running through as curators. Yeah, and I think the, the last point that we have, and again, please check out the show notes. We make them publicly available on our Discord. The last final thought. How fast do you want your cube? Do you want fast games? Do you want medium length games? Do you want games to stretch out for 10, 12, 14 turns? Or do you want games to be effectively over in the first five or six turns? Like that is an important question. And sometimes you can gather that information maybe from other formats that your group is playing. If you're curating a cube for your group, 
Think about the players. Think about the kind of environments that they enjoy to play in. And you can kind of meld your cube to really cater to your players, right? If you've got players that just really don't want to be playing a game for longer than six or seven turns, then sure, crank up that power level. If you've got players that really enjoy the longer, more drawn-out games, then you can curate the cube for the games to, to last a little bit longer. Well, I hope this was helpful and that this is engaging for all levels. And I would love to get the feedback again, like we asked for our last one, from those advanced curators to see if we got this right. Because we're taking a lot of abstract ideas and trying to make it so that new curators and people that are asking these questions have something they can reference and what levers you can pull as a curator. But other than that, we're going to move over to the socials. Stu, would you mind taking us away? So first of all, as always, I want to give a huge shout out to our patrons, Keaton Schultz, Lord Justice, Chris Singer, Nick LaPointe, Stephen Conifal, Preston, and Sam McKenna. Huge thanks to you guys for your continued support of the show. If you want to be a Patreon, you can go check out our Discord or Twitter. We've got all the details there. And again, really big shout out to our Patreon supporters. Much love to you guys. If you guys out there, you love the show, you want to uh, show us a little bit more support or you want to show us some support, we would appreciate a five-star review on your chosen podcast platform. Really goes a long way to get the visibility for the podcast out there. You can also support us by using our altersleeves.com affiliate link, altersleeves.com slash ubercube. Get 5% off your purchase. You can also use our Inked Gaming affiliate link. You can find that on our Discord or on our Twitter. Go and check them out for some cool play mats, dice bags, mouse pads, uh, all kinds of custom products available for your cube or whatever is your chosen format. Again, the Twitters. We love all the community interaction we've been getting over the last year and a half, not just on the Twitters, but on the Discords. But reach out to us on Twitter. We are at UberCubeMTGPod. Or if you've got a longer question, either about Cube in general or one of our episodes, you can find us. We are UberCubeMTGPodcast at gmail.com. And again, come hang out with us on the Discord. A lot of wonderful conversation. A lot of growth over the last few weeks that I've seen. we got a ton of new people that have joined recently. So if you're looking for help with your Cube, or you just want to come and hang out and chat about Cube or Magic or anything else, come hang out. We'd love to have you anthony patreon i'm going to hand it over to you again tell us a bit about the patreon you already did the patreon i know but i want you to tell us more about the patreon the patreon is no longer a meme at all we do have supporters we do love them thank you for supporting us and for helping us to get new uh well we still got to get this new mic stand for Stu. it's falling apart as i'm looking but we're doing pretty good but he did fix it we're we're gonna we're gonna do a full diy'd his (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna do a full revamp of the audio setup at some point i think we do uh, appreciate our patreon so basically if you have any ideas or stuff you'd like to hear us talk about on the show the best way to communicate is over the discord or just send us an email as Stu alluded to but i do appreciate getting the great ideas and we've got a few that we're working on from our frequent listeners so yeah i will you. say if you've got this is meant to be a community type yeah, of situation I, absolutely and especially if you're looking for cube help right throw those in a question and put them in an email put them in a, at a twitter post to us right absolutely. a simple question like that could turn into a really informative episode for for everybody out there in the community so uh, don't be afraid reach out we'd love to hear from you other than that, we're going to say the thing that we always say here at Ubercube is Happy, Happy Cubing! cubing.